Okay, now we've come to chapter 40, verse 16. The interpretation of the baker's dream. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Let's stop right there. We notice in verse 16 that the baker saw a favorable interpretation, which motivated him, even though he might have been hesitant at first, it motivated him to also receive a favorable interpretation, a favorable one for himself, even though the birds are eating out of the basket on his head. That doesn't necessarily bode well. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be baking for Pharaoh. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It has a negative connotation. And he knows that, but he's hoping that the negative is actually not negative. He's hoping that the evil is not actually evil, or the judgment is not actually judgment. He's hoping that it's favorable. Verse 16 says, Because he saw the favorable interpretation for the cupbearer, he wanted the same for himself. Well, it's not the same. Verses 18 and 19, the interpretation. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Now it's confirmed. Again, Joseph says three baskets are three days, three more days, and Pharaoh will lift up your head. Lift up your head, but it's not just that expression. It's lift up your head from you. From you. Which means, yes, you'll be released, but your head is going to be taken off. Your head will be taken off you and will hang you on a tree. Execution. Because he, in fact, was likely the one who was complicit in harming Pharaoh. After the investigation, it was likely discovered that he was complicit and not the cupbearer. And then when it says, and the birds will eat your flesh off you, that's, that's making it absolutely clear that he's the one that's going to be hanged there and he's going to hang there and dangle there for a while long enough for the birds of prey to come and feast on his flesh. Well, in 16 to 19, we find that Joseph is a true prophet, a confirmation that he is a true prophet, a true teacher, not a false prophet, nor a false teacher. Joseph is a true prophet and teacher, not a false one. Why so? Because false prophets only preach favorably. False teachers only preach favorably. They don't preach unfavorable, unsavory, hard messages. They don't preach against sin. They don't preach against the the sin of man and the impending judgment of God. They don't preach those doctrines against man's sin 
end for the righteous judgment of God unless one repents and believes in the gospel. They don't preach that way. They don't teach that way. Not the false teachers and the false prophets. But Joseph did do so. He did do so in this way, straight to the face of the baker. He told him clearly to his face what he needed to hear, what he should hear. Joseph was obligated as a prophet of God to do so. It was his duty to do so, to tell him the truth, the exact truth, face to face, and not shrink back, not cower and say, I'm not going to say it, I won't say it, it's too hard to say, or he might harm me here. He might harm me here in the prison. He might rally a mob in the prison against me and put me to death. Something of that sort might have happened, could have happened. Who knows what might have happened, what might have gone through Joseph's mind. But Joseph did not succumb to any of those temptations, if he had them. He didn't succumb. He just told the baker the truth. This is a characteristic of true prophets and true teachers, to preach even though it is unfavorable. And that is whether they are young or old, whether the prophet or the teacher or pastor is young or old, that is his duty. In 1 Samuel, we find that Samuel was given a harsh message to preach to Eli from God. 1 Samuel 3, 10 to 18. 1 Samuel 3, 10 to 18. Remember, Samuel is a boy, and God appears to him at night. And this is what God told him, and even God warned him through Eli, and Samuel had to speak up. 1 Samuel 3.10 Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. He was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And he said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Samuel's afraid, but Eli notices this and puts a curse on Samuel if Samuel doesn't say it. 
Just tell me, Samuel, what did God tell you? And there's a curse on you, and even worse than the curse that God had announced to you to tell me. And that motivated Samuel to speak up. And it says in verse 18, So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli answered, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So there were no repercussions against Samuel from Eli. He accepted what was told. Another case of this is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Jeremiah is also young. 1, 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow to build and to plant. Jeremiah says, I am a youth. God says, do not say, I am a youth. Do not be afraid of them. And notice the content of Jeremiah's message or the purpose of it in verse 10. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. Four negative parts to his message. Four negative parts. And in proportion to that, look at to build and to plant. Four negative, two positive. To build and to plant. It's the hard part to preach, to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow. He's talking about the sins of men. That, That has to be preached so that those sins are destroyed. Those sins are mortified. That's why it's hard because man does not want to hear that his sins must be given up. So the true prophet is supposed to preach this way, even though he's young. And it doesn't, so it doesn't matter that he is young. In the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy we read 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 This is in reference to Timothy the young pastor We know that he's young or a youth because of 1 Timothy 4:12 1 Timothy 4.12, that calls him so. And also even in 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul the Apostle calls on Timothy, Timothy to flee from youthful lusts. So Timothy is a youth. 
Having said that, that's no excuse for fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. God has given us power, love, and discipline, but not a spirit of timidity, not a spirit of fear, not a spirit of intimidation. If it doesn't come from God, then it has to come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The spirit of timidity. Further, 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 8. Speaking of Timothy's charge, what he's supposed to do. By overcoming fear, what is he supposed to do? 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 8. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. These final words are a solemn charge according to verse 1. This is serious business according to verse 1. A solemn charge in the presence of God and Christ, judge of the living and the dead, and his appearing and kingdom. What's going to happen with his appearing and kingdom? It's, yes, he's going to divide the sheep from the goats, the elect from the reprobate. But the elect, the faithful elect, they are the ones who conduct their ministry faithfully until the end, according to verses 5 to 8, and receive a reward. Not just Paul, not just Paul, but all of them will receive the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's for all of us, Timothy and all of us. And this faithful preaching, notice verses 2 to 4. 2 to 4. The word must be preached. That's the word of Christ, not the word of men. The word of Christ. And this at all times, in season and out of season. And this includes... Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove, why? Because of sin. Rebuke, why? Because of sin. Exhort, why? Because of sin. With great patience and instruction. Why? Because sin is hard to overcome. It takes a while for people to be convinced of their sins. And meantime, what do people do? They pursue false doctrine. They won't endure sound doctrine. They can't tolerate, they can't 
bear with sound doctrine. They can't put up with it. When they hear sound doctrine, it grates them the wrong way. It goes against the grain. It bothers their conscience. They go away while they sit there with a sour look on their face, listening to sound doctrine, and then they walk away and gripe and complain. The wives to the husbands, the husbands to the wives, the children to the parents, and they create some kind of commotion, some kind of conflict, and rise up against the preacher or the teacher who's teaching the sound doctrine. This is what happens. They can't endure sound doctrine. They would rather have their ears tickled. They would rather have things that are pleasant and sweet to their ears and follow those teachers who will give them their desires. They want a free will to sin and everybody go to heaven. That's what they want. A free will to sin and everybody go to heaven. And they will take God's truth and reject it and turn aside to myths. They would rather believe delusions. They would rather flatter themselves and think that they're on their way to heaven. They'd rather live that way than to live with a clean conscience forgiven of sin. Instead of hearing about sin and the forgiveness of sins, they'd rather smother their guilty conscience and make their conscience callous and continue to enjoy their sin. Turning aside from the truth and adhering to mythology. We also find in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, when he charges the elders of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, when he charges them, he says the following about what he did and how they should emulate him. The elders of Ephesus, not just Timothy, but all of the elders of Ephesus, not just the Apostle Paul, but all of us, everybody should be like this. Acts 20, 26 to 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Therefore, I am innocent of the blood of men. Those false teachers, false preachers, false pastors, false prophets of today and prophetesses and false uh, female pastors. We have to include that since that's so rampant today. That they, what do they do? They don't preach the whole purpose of God. So they have blood on their hands. The souls of men, their blood is on their hands. They are guilty of shedding the blood of men. They murder souls. They are murderers of souls. Therefore, they are bloody people who ought to be avoided. Avoid the violence that they do to the human soul. That's what he means here. He's not one of them. I'm innocent of these people's blood, everyone's blood, because I preach what I was supposed to preach. I preach everything, the whole counsel, the whole word, the whole purpose of God. I didn't just choose to preach on love one week, grace the next week, mercy the following week, and then go back to love 
grace, and mercy. I didn't do that and completely avoid or hardly mention the word sin. I wasn't like that. In fact, I brought the sins of men to the surface. They needed to repent to be forgiven of sins. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, 46 to 47. That's what he preached. Even here, he says, in 2021, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way he preached. That's the way Joseph preached. That's the way we all should be, whether we are in the pulpit or in the pews. However we are, whatever station we have as a Christian in the body of Christ, whatever abilities and positions we hold, that's the way we ought to be with people, just like Joseph. Then we are true teachers. False prophets, false teachers do the opposite. They avoid the difficult subjects of sin. We find then the conclusion of the matter in verses 20 to 23. 20 to 23. Thus, it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. On Pharaoh's birthday, a feast is made and he lifts up the head of both of his officials. We see the phrase lift up the head of that actually in verse 20 does mean he released them both. However, after he released them both from prison, the one, the cupbearer, is restored to office, and he does, in fact, Moses says, in reference to the fulfillment of Joseph's prophecy or Joseph's interpretation of the prophecy in the dream, it actually happened that way. Moses confirms Joseph's words, and then the baker is hanged just as Joseph predicted. It happened, it says in verse 22, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Exactly. Both of the, the officials, whatever happened to each one, exactly as, as Joseph prophesied. A true prophet predicts the future accurately. Not inaccurately, and not sometimes correct and sometimes wrong. Right. Or mostly wrong and sometimes correct. Or not mostly correct and just wrong a little here and there. That's not the way it works. If one is a true prophet, he is declaring by the Spirit of God that the Word of God has been revealed to him. And therefore, if it is God revealing his Word to the true prophet then that word will be fulfilled exactly as God announced. Exactly as God announced. It will happen. And if a true prophet speaks falsehood, then the true prophet, theoretically speaking, should be avoided 
and also should be put to death. That's what should happen. If, theoretically speaking, a true prophet says something false, preaches something false, and says, thus says the Lord, but it actually did not come from the Lord. We, it has to come about as God intended in the mouth or through the mouth of the true prophet. Otherwise, he's a false prophet. Throughout the years and in our generation, there are numerous people, men and women, claiming to be prophets and prophetesses. Yet, they are false prophets. And they have no fear of God, no fear of the judgment of God. They don't even have any courtesy to take God in context, to take His Word and interpret it correctly. They have no shame in contradicting God's Word. They would rather just say what they want to say for their own fame and fortune rather than give proper place, do reverence and honor to God and His Word. They don't do that. They do the very opposite. This is a current problem, but it is a universal problem, not just in the United States, it's everywhere around the world, and it has happened throughout all generations. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. on prediction and lack of fulfillment. Deuteronomy 18, we read at verse 20, 20 to 22. After predicting the coming of Christ, he says here, 18, 20, But the prophet, who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. The prophet who speaks presumptuously. What does it mean to speak in presumption? According Out of himself, not from God. And he might do it in the name of God, in the name of the Lord, the true Lord, or he might do it in the name of other gods. If he claims the name of the Lord, or if he claims the name of an idol, in either case, if he's claiming to be a true prophet, and his word isn't fulfilled, if it doesn't come about, it says in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. He spoke it presumptuously, Don't be afraid of him. Don't listen to anything he says. Don't be afraid of his threats. Don't think and worry about anything. Don't listen to him at all. Therefore, no prophet should, no true prophet would ever say something 
that is about to happen, he would never predict the future and it not be fulfilled. No true prophet would do that if he has a word from God. In fact, that prophet ought to die, according to verse 20. That prophet shall die. He deserves death. Further, Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. Verse 1. Deuteronomy 13, 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, or the, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. In this case, the prophet or the dreamer, he might give a sign or a wonder and it comes about. But then he says, let us go after other gods. Whatever he says might happen, but he wants you to worship false gods, contrary to the God of Scripture. Should we listen? He says, no. We should not listen to him, but we should purge the evil from among us. He is counseling rebellion against the Lord. Naturally, then, we might ask, how are we going to test a prophet? How are we going to test a man or a woman who claims to be a prophet? When they say so, how do we know it is so or it is not the case? How will we know? Isaiah 8. Isaiah chapter 8. 8. 19 and 20. Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If they don't speak according to this word, they have no dawn. They have no light. Whatever they say, if it is inconsistent with Scripture, if it contradicts the Bible, then what they say is darkness, not light. Don't listen to them. Don't pay attention whenever they say something that contradicts the Bible. Proverbs 28, 9. Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, 
Even his prayer is an abomination. If we don't listen to the Bible and we pray contrary to the Bible, our prayer is detestable to God. It's loathsome to God. We can't pray and say, well, I prayed about it. Therefore, it's acceptable. And God told me thus and so. Well, if God told me thus and so, and thus and so doesn't match Scripture, then thus and so didn't come from God, it came from Satan. Amen. Or the world or the flesh. But ultimately, it did not come from God. If it contradicts the Word of God, it didn't come from God. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6... In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, the Apostle says that you might learn not to exceed what is written. Not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. We cannot exceed whatever is written in Scripture. And if we do exceed what is written in Scripture, we're called arrogant. Arrogant to exceed anything in Scripture. And one more, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. A sign of maturity is our discernment based on Scripture. A sign of maturity. Are we babies? Are we infants? Or are we adults? Are we mature in Christ? Hebrews 5.11 Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When a false prophet rises up, how will you know whether he's a false prophet or not? If his word contradicts the word of righteousness, and we are accustomed to this word of righteousness, then we are able to discern good and evil. If we don't know what's in Scripture and a false prophet rises up, we won't know whether what he's saying agrees with Scripture or contradicts Scripture. Therefore, we must know, be accustomed to the word of righteousness. We must know it thoroughly. That's why we must read it cover to cover. We must memorize it. We must hear it. We must read it. We must memorize it. Meditate on it. All of these practices should be basic, essential to the Christian life. Yes, to the Christian life. Colossians 3.16, let let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly the word of Christ. Let no one convince you that you are wrong, that you are arrogant, that you are a legalist, a Pharisee, for knowing the word of Christ. Because the apostle of Christ said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He didn't say sparsely. He didn't say meagerly, miserly. He said, richly dwell 
within you. So if anybody says he's a Christian and says, no, you can't use the Bible, you can't be so familiar with the Bible and, and insist on the Bible and use it to contradict so-and-so because he's a good teacher, he's a, he's a good prophet, he's a prophet of God. No, he's not a good teacher and he's not a prophet of God if he contradicts the Word of God. Amen. And if we are equipped with the Word of God and we point that out, we're not in the wrong, they are in the wrong. Just as Joseph had interpreted. So, we must interpret the Word of God correctly, then we can assess the situation correctly. And lastly, we find in Genesis 40, 23, the cupbearer forgot Joseph, did not remember him, but forgot him. Was not concerned, was not mindful, did not have any humanity, even though Joseph gave him a great benefit. He did not show any kindness. He did not reciprocate in any way. He was a callous cupbearer. But Joseph... Though he had to live with this for two more years, chapter 41.1 says at the end of two full years. Remember, it took two more years before Joseph was released when Pharaoh, by God, had his own dreams to be interpreted. God was still at work here. Though the cupbearer forgot Joseph, God didn't forget Joseph. God was still testing Joseph. God was still refining Joseph. He was still putting Joseph through affliction that Joseph might come forth as gold. That's what God was doing with Joseph. He didn't forget Joseph in this case. In Psalm 138, verses 7 and 8, we read of what God does. Psalm 137 I'm sorry, 138, verses 7 and 8. 138, 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. He understands that even though he walks in trouble, God will deal with the enemies of the righteous. And in verse 8, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Ultimately, God's will is victorious in the life of his people. God's will is And that will has everlasting love. Everlasting love. And he will not forsake the work of his hands. Man might forsake us. The cupbearer forsook Joseph. But God did not forsake Joseph from beginning to end. He never forsakes him. He always is mindful of the afflictions of the righteous. Speaking of the afflictions of the righteous... These afflictions are ordained by God. Any Christian theology that has afflictions for the righteous 
the, um, absent for the Christian life now is a false theology. Any theology that teaches that current Christians are not to suffer, not to suffer persecution, not to suffer affliction, not to have heartaches, not to have hardships, not to have anything like that, but everything is supposed to be easy for them. Anyone who believes that, anyone who teaches that, is a false teacher. Because the Christian life does indeed include it. And it includes it from beginning to end. Not just for one generation. Not just for Jewish Christians. Some false teachers say only Jewish Christians are to suffer. And others will say only Jewish Christians of the first century or leading up to AD 70. Other false teachers will say Christians, whatever their ethnic background, no suffering whatsoever now because all suffering ended, all, does, all concern for God's righteousness and holiness ended by AD 70. Now things are better, things improve. And we have the Christianization of the world. Whether we're talking about the first one was more dispensationalism and the second one post-millennialism, preterism. Whether in the one or the other, both are cultic, pernicious, false doctrines. That's what they are. Because they militate against the New Testament doctrine. All over from Matthew to Revelation... We're told about how much we must suffer, how much we must be afflicted, whether it's in our circumstances, daily circumstances, or whether it's in our persecution. There will be suffering. It's all over the New Testament, predicted from beginning to end. Let's look at some of the New Testament evidence that... Though we suffer, God intends it, and God intends for it to help us, to benefit us. Philippians 1, Philippians 1, 29. 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Philippians 1, 29 to 30. It says it's granted, which means it's a gift of God for the sake of Christ twofold, to believe in Him and to suffer for His sake. Twofold gifts of God, to believe and to suffer. This one verse tears apart, demolishes so much false doctrine. For one, believing or faith is a gift of God. And most people don't believe that faith is a gift of God. They believe it's generated in the human will, in the human free will, good will. But it's not that at all. It is a gift of God, God's grace. That's one. And another, they say that it's unnecessary to believe in Christ. But here it says, in Him. Faith itself is no good unless that faith has as 
has as its object Jesus Christ. If Christ is not the object of faith, the faith is no good. Because you have to have His righteousness reckoned to your account for you to be declared righteous. Also, the gift is to suffer. Since when have we heard a sermon or the common church heard a sermon that suffering in this life is a gift of God. So don't complain. Don't complain against God. And don't complain when your preachers and teachers teach you that suffering is a gift of God. It's, you, we must say thank you. Because God uses it to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ. So we should say thank you. We shouldn't say, no suffering now. But most theologies find a way to excuse suffering in the present age. Not the case at all. Furthermore, we find in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. While you're finding James, the other thing about Philippians... Some of the false teachers say, yes, it's necessary to believe. And they might even use Philippians 1.29. They might even say faith is a gift of God, but not the suffering. And it was only for the Philippians, but not now. Only the Philippians were told that verse. So that verse, or the book of Philippians, is mostly or completely irrelevant for us. Because all of those words were fulfilled in earlier generations. So it's irrelevant to our generation. Not so. Not so. They would have to make James also irrelevant to us, but James says the following. James chapter 1. James 1 and verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if, anyone, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But only in the first century. But only to the Jewish church. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. The same false teachers might use verses 9 to 11 to preach that the poor are special to God. They might use 9 to 11 to preach that today in, in the social justice Marxist liberation theology Christianity that's what they say 
And they take this verse out of context, verses 9 to 11. But what about the rest of the passage we just read? And what about reading 9 to 11 in context? The other parts are irrelevant, but this part is relevant just because it mentions a poor man? How is that for misinterpretation of Scripture? But suffering is to be uh, considered all joy, verse 2. Because the testing of our faith produces endurance. Faith must be tested, and it produces endurance. Endurance has a perfect result. Perfection and completeness lacking in nothing. If we want true wisdom, where do we get it? From God. And how about after we have persevered under trial? This crown of life, is it only for the Jewish Christians? Is it only for the Jewish Christians or any of the Christians in the first century? Uh, up to eighty seventy, For whom is this crown, crown of life? It's for all of us. Until the end of the age. These are just a couple of passages for further study. If you wanted to study one letter that deals with current afflictions of the righteous, the letter of 1 Peter is devoted to that. Even the book of Revelation is devoted to that subject. That we ought to endure because God, His purposes for us, will be successful in the end. He will punish our adversaries and through affliction deliver us for His eternal kingdom. That's the book of Revelation. It's the same all over the New Testament. It's inescapable to understand, to believe, and to properly understand the gospel that suffering, afflictions, persecutions are for us from beginning to end. It's inescapable. That's what we should believe and teach. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.